So let's jump into this. We're going to take our final step in this series, seven things uh, that every Christian should know about the Bible. But I want to do a brief recap this morning, and then we'll turn our attention on today's message. Week one, we talked about how the Bible came to be. That is the first thing that you need to know as a Christian. You need to understand how the Bible came to be. In that week, we talked about uh, basic ideas of inspiration. We zoomed in on that Uh, on week two, and I'll get there in just a second, but we talked about the basics of inspiration. We talked about translation. Uh, We uh, I entered into this, uh, entered into your minds most likely uh, an idea called textual criticism. This is where we look at all these manuscripts and we find out what the intent of the writers were or, or what was uh, to be understood based on language of, you know, of the common era at that time. And so we look at textual criticism. And then we talked about the canon or um, uh, particularly for us, the Protestant canon of Scripture and what that looks like. So, so we, we talked about those things and how the Bible came to be. I encourage you to go back to week one and re-listen to that message because if you don't know how your Bible came to be, most likely you're going to believe a bunch of cockamamie nonsense about how the Bible came to be, right? Like golden tablets dropping out of the sky or something, right? And then the skeptics of the world are going to laugh at you and they're also going to take you to task because you believe in nonsense, right? So it's important to understand what it is that we actually believe and where it came from. So how we got our Bible, week one. Week two, we talked about the Bible being God-given and humanly composed. So that was the second thing you needed to know about your Bible. It is God-given, but it is humanly composed. And so we talked about inspiration in a far more in-depth manner. We actually started to analyze a couple of the theories of inspiration, including inspiration as artistic ability. In this, in this view, the scripture is inspired because God is in some ways some sort of cosmic muse, and we just are, are excited and encouraged by him and inspired by him, and so we write down ideas. This is not true, but this is one view. Another one would be inspiration as divine endorsement. That is that the authors of the Bible wrote everything that they wanted to write, and then God came behind and stamped his approval on top of it. This too is not what we believe uh, with regard to uh, the inspiration of the Bible. The next two are closely related. We talked about inspiration as divine dictation or inspiration as divine enablement with words. This is commonly known in the world as... um, Uh, commonly known as verbal plenary inspiration. This is also not what happened in regard to the scripture. Why do we know that? Because God did not dictate every word that is given to everybody who writes these passages of scripture down. It's really important that you know this because if you hold to these views, you're going to have a very serious problem when it comes to interpretation. You're going to have a very serious problem when it comes to translation. You're going to have a very serious problem when you start to realize that that, uh, there aren't words that translate from Greek and Hebrew to the English language so much. And if God is able to communicate exact words and what they mean, you would think he would be able to work that out even in translation. But that isn't the case. So we need to unwind our views of these kinds of things, which led us to how, uh, how it is God-given and humanly composed. And that is 
inspiration as far as something that we would call conceptual guidance. And that is, God is inspiring the people to write the letters to the people that they're writing to based on the issues that they're dealing with. And he is using the language of the day. He's using the creativity of the author. He's using the sarcasm of people. He uses the hyperbole that authors will use. He uses all of that to communicate a very real truth to very real people. So it's a very important thing on how we understand uh, biblical inspiration. Week three, we talked about the meaning of biblical authority. And I told you or I shared with you two extreme views that are often, uh, often espoused in this. And that is that one, everything is negotiable and there's no authoritative nature of the Bible. How many of you know that that's nonsense? I hope you do, because it's nonsense, right? So the idea that everything is negotiable ends up leaving us with really a book that should collect dust on a shelf. The next view is the Bible as some sort of paper pope, or some people believing that the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scripture, right? Um, The important thing about this is that everything in the Bible is not authoritative. But if you believe in a paper pope... If you believe that the Bible is the third person of the Trinity, you're going to have to do absolutely everything that the Bible says. But you already don't do that. Not one person in this room does. Nobody here has sacrificed a sheep or a goat anytime lately, right? Nobody here has taken an eye for an eye or cut off their hand and throw it aside so that they don't go to hell because of that stumbling block. We don't do this because we have a, uh, an understanding of the Bible that is... Um, nuanced as it should be, right? And so in that week, we talked about distinguishing between what is prescriptive and what is descriptive. And here's the most important thing that you need to remember about that prescriptive, descriptive thing. It requires that we accept that some, if not many, of the biblical commands are simply not applicable to us. The reason why people fight about the Bible is because they say absolutely everything is applicable. And nobody in this room lives that way. I can assure you, but we'll fight over it, all right. We'll argue, we'll, we'll complain with the, you know, to each other or against each other about these ideas. So we have to come to that realization, and then we need to distinguish what is prescriptive versus what is descriptive. We need to recognize that the Bible often deals with brutal realities and not ideal situations, especially when you see God condoning and even commanding genocide. What is happening here? There is a broken world that God is writing or changing, and he does a certain thing. He has not commanded us to go into any city and destroy everybody there. Can I get an amen? You need to know that if you didn't say amen, okay? No matter how bad you want to kill somebody after this Super Bowl, okay? So anyway, so number three, remember that all biblical commands need to be situated in light of the progressive nature of divine revelation, which includes the unique and final authority of Jesus Christ. We we talked about this in one really odd example that that Moses says, don't muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. And later we see Jesus and Paul both say that's, that was altogether speaking about pastors and how they earn their keep. No. <laughs> seems like we're talking about oxen here, right? It seems clear. But the progressive understanding of Revelation seen through the eyes of Jesus and through the lens of the New Testament authors, we actually start to see what the point of the text is all about.
Uh, the last thing in that week was to accept that the church doctrines are subject to revision as the church seeks God's wisdom on matters of faith and practice. Uh, our church does not have everything figured out, and I would go even further and say there is no church that has everything figured out. We need to have grace with one another and realize that we are, we are understanding things better and better and better as we grow. Week four, we learned that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. That's an important principle for you to know when it comes to the Bible. It is written for you. It is not written to you. And understanding that will help you to interpret and read and use the Bible well. If you think that every page in Scripture was written to you, you're going to quote Jeremiah 29, 11 as if it was written to you. And it wasn't. Because it wasn't written to you, you, but it was written for you, you need to be able to zoom out and understand what principle is true for you. If God says that he takes care of the sparrows, if God says that he takes care of his creation, then that covers you, and therefore you can come to this idea, God has a plan for me. Amen? You can do that. But Jeremiah 29, 11 is not yours. Unless you want to follow after in 12 and 13 and go into captivity for 70 years. Then all you can have all that too, right? Week 5, we talked about taking the Bible seriously, but not always taking the Bible literally. This is a huge sticking point within uh, biblical interpretation, okay? Uh, if, I, if I came here today and I said, man, the uh, uh, traffic was really bad this morning and I was running a bit late and so I just put the, I put the pedal to the ground or whatever we would say and I flew here, what would you conclude? You would conclude a very serious thing. And that is that I was going really fast to get here on time, right? But you would never conclude that I literally flew here. See, the Bible is filled with figurative language, and we need to understand it through this lens. We can take the Bible seriously and not take it literally. Can I get an amen? Right? We can take it seriously and not take it literally. Jesus says, I am the vine. That's weird. Jesus says, I am the door. He, he's not a door. Right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? All of these things are figurative language to communicate a very serious truth, but we don't take it literally. And we've got to be careful with that. Week six, we talked about God's purpose for Scripture. And here's what we covered last week. That we learn about our faith, and we learn about hope. We learn about true righteousness. And we learn who God is exactly. And it's a beautiful thing because anytime we want to know who God really is, all we have to do is look to King Jesus. Because if we have seen him, we have seen the Father. If we know him, we know the Father. That's a very important piece that you need to know about your Bible. Today, the last thing that we need to know about our Bible is that everything points to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. This is the greatest evidence for why Jesus is not only the only way to the Father, but it is also why we cannot divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. It was all written to point to him. Did you know that? Everything that has been written, everything that has happened has been pointing to this one uh, king, this one savior who will walk among his people all the time. From the, from the beginning of creation, and I'll, I'll go even further, before the foundation of the world, it was about Jesus too. So this is a really important thing. I'd like to read you something that will set today's message up nicely. 
This is actually the introduction from Sally Lloyd-Jones' bestseller, The Jesus Storybook Bible. Yes, I'm reading you a kid's book in church. God wrote, I love you, she says. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too and wrote it in a book and he called that book the Bible. Now, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should or shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how, to, how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you will soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and they run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It is an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is that it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. Everything points to Jesus. Everything in the scripture points to Jesus. G.K. Chesterton said, I had always felt like first, uh, like life first, I had always felt life first as a story. And if there is a story, there is a storyteller. The beauty of the Bible, guys, is something really magnificent. It's not only, not only that everything points to Jesus, but Everything points to Jesus while Jesus is also the main character of the story and he's actually the storyteller himself. And this is a very interesting, interesting dynamic inside of this uh, thing we call the Bible. How many of you know that stories follow patterns? How many of you know that? How many of you just too clueless to see the pattern? That would be me sometimes, right? Okay, I'm fine with that. So you know that stories follow patterns. One of the common uh, ideas or common patterns in a story is called a story arc. And here's roughly how a story arc goes. The beginning of the story, you know, starts us off. It's, it's a stasis point. It's however the story is, is, is going at the beginning. And then there comes a rising action. And then we reach a thing called a climax. And after that, and this is the tricky part about the Bible because it kind of changes the story. We reach the climax. And then what happens is what, what writers would call a falling action and resolution. 
So again, we have stasis, rising action, climax, falling action, and resolution. But in the story of God, the climax and what follows are far more interesting than the average story. It's almost as though we reach a climax and we just keep going. It's an amazing, amazing truth when you think about this story. What I mean is this. If we see the resurrection, say... We're, we're going to be coming on Easter before too long, right? If we look at the resurrection as the climax, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as that climactic point, and everything else after that is a falling action, uh, it doesn't motivate us to live a life that is worthy of God. We, we really can't even comprehend the part of the story. We see Jesus going to the cross, we see him being buried, we see him raising from the dead, and 2,000 years later we're like, it's true, but it's weird. It's true, but we have no idea what it is. Instead, if we will see the Bible for what it is, which is a new pattern in storytelling, and that is that the resurrection being the inciting event, the beginning of the rising action of this great story, we will then realize that you and I are still in the story every day. Every day. What Jesus started with his resurrection was the beginning of a new life. We reach this climactic point and everything just seems to get better and better. Without this, we live believing that the story again is over. And so we just coast around until the end of life. How many of you would say, you feel, be honest with me please, how many of you would say you read the stories of the Bible, you were taught them maybe growing up or you've heard them from this church, and then you go, but what does it really affect my life? How does it really affect my life? How many of you would honestly say, I asked that question, how does this really affect my life? Yeah, the reason why that question is presented to us or comes into our mind is because we actually read the story wrong. We have this point where Jesus is resurrected and then everything else is just trailing off. And now, again, 2,000 years removed from it, we're like, I don't know. This doesn't make much sense. All I ever seem to do is go to work and do the grind and, and whatever. And then I get excited about some things in life, but then we go back to the normal blah after that. But if we read the story the right way, which is that the resurrection just begins the, the greatest story ever told, uh, we will live very different. Another thing that stories have are plots and subplots. Uh, stories have main and supporting characters. Uh, this, is, this is important for us. When we read all of the texts of Scripture, we have all kinds of plots and subplots. Do you know that there are some stories you go, How? that doesn't seem connected with Jesus at all. Have you ever read stories like this? Like the woman uh, or the, the dad who makes this oath to God and says, the first person to come out of my house uh, when I get home, she is, uh, I will sacrifice that to you. And his daughter comes out and he literally has to sacrifice his kid. How many of you are shocked that that's a story in the Bible? <laughs> okay, good. Uh, so it's a weird story. But we look at it, we go, what does this have to do with Jesus? right? What does this have to do with anything? Well, it's, it's staggering to us, right? Because there are plots and then there are subplots, but there are ways that these stories work back to point to Jesus. The other thing is uh, main characters and supporting characters. And I want to just jump on a soapbox for a little bit here because we live in a culture that struggles with this idea. We are told from a very young age that we are uh, the main character in this life, right? Like everything is about us. And you may be the main character in your story, in your uh, little 
story. But you are for sure not the main character in the whole of life, okay? And believing that you are sets you up for disappointment, doesn't it? Because you go, everything's about me, and then all of a sudden everything isn't about you, or your wife tells you everything's not about you, and then you realize real quickly that life is hard right? We, we have been sold a bill of goods. Everything's about me. And then this narcissistic nonsense that we get filled with leads us to, to being mad at the world when it doesn't work out our way. When, jo- when our job doesn't notice us, when our boss doesn't care, when the church doesn't pay attention, when our neighbor isn't helping us, because after all, I'm the king of the world. No. You're not the main character. But nor is the opposite side of that uh, coin the truth either. That you are nothing of a character in the story. There are churches that say Jesus is the main character. He is. And then they say basically you're nothing in this story. Do you realize if you're nothing in this story Jesus died for nothing? It doesn't make any sense. Jesus goes to a cross to bleed and die for people that he just doesn't care about because they're not part of the story. No, he bleeds and dies and raises from the dead because you are a vital piece of his story. You are the ones who reflect his image. And he loves you intimately and deeply and profoundly. So the soapbox is just this. You're not the main character in the story, but you are one of God's characters in his story. Amen? You are not the main character, but you are one of God's characters in this story. And he loves you and expects you to be uh, part of his kingdom. He wants you to be that. So what I want to do, again, uh, is, is zoom back in on the point of the message today, which is that everything points to Jesus. Every storyline, every idea, it points to Jesus. We're going to explore some of these texts, and we're going to see how this works. The first one is found in Romans chapter 10, verse 16. It'll be on the screen. Christian interpreters believed that the Old Testament saints had previously received the gospel about Jesus Christ. This is, this is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around because we read it and we go, what did that good news sound like? And it also creates a problem when we believe that the resurrection is the climax and not the story growing and growing and growing because they didn't hear a story that included resurrection. Did you know that? They didn't know about a Jesus going to a cross and dying, being buried, and raising on the third day. They didn't have this idea and yet they were preached the good news. Because the good news is found in the person of Jesus and all that he will accomplish in life. Uh, Romans 10.16 says, However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So who is Paul paralleling the good news with? Or what is he paralleling with? Good news and the report of Isaiah. Isaiah was declaring the good news and people did not believe it. Okay, But the good news was still preached in the Old Testament because all the way back then it was still about Jesus. We were pointing towards the Savior and unfolding this story as life was going. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, we see Paul write this. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. What did Abraham understand the good news to be? A blessing to the world, right? 
And we're going to see in a second, it included a seed, which is Jesus, right? And so all the nations in the world are going to be blessed through you. All the way back at the beginning of the Jewish people, God is pointing to his son. He is everything in this story. Amen? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed, we have good news preached to us. We have had good news preached to us, just as they also did. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not unified or it was not united by faith in those who heard. How many of you know how the people of the Old Testament were saved? The same way you're saved, by faith in a Messiah, a coming king, okay? They were looking forward to one who would come and we look back to one who did come and one who will come again. Okay? But it's the same faith expression. It's the same salvation. It is trust God. God has not rewritten his story. As a matter of fact, he stayed consistent and Jesus has been at the heart of the story the entire time. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, we read, In which also he, Jesus, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. We know the story of the ark. We know that the ark represents, it's a type and shadow of Jesus. And so it saves people out of this darkness or out of this destruction that is coming. Jesus does the exact same thing. And the parallel throughout scripture is that Jesus is the very one who's going to be that ultimate ark for humanity. To save each and every one of us. To, to gather us up, right? And to bring us to our king, to our Lord. Um, so we have to understand that this was being preached all the way back into the days of Noah. Jesus is the heart of everything. Everything points to him. Everything. Even Noah's Ark points to him. This is why the Old Testament was regarded as a shadow of the substance discovered in Jesus. Colossians chapter 2 verse 17 reads this. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, I want you to go a little bit further in this with me. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And we hit verse 17 with that understanding. But let's go, let's go back to verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You know what Jesus nailed to the cross? Sure, your sins are nailed to the cross because you are a transgressor. But he has nailed the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you. It's the law. He has nailed it to the cross. We are no longer uh, a children of the law, but a children of the Spirit. Not by flesh, but by faith and by walking in the Spirit. He says, having nailed it to the cross, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day things which are a mere shadow now what were the shadows here festivals 
right? New moon celebrations, Sabbath day, all of these things. Why were they shadows? One, because the Bible says they were shadows, right? Paul tells us they were shadows. How were they shadows? Do you know who your Sabbath rest is? It's Jesus. It's not a day. It's not a day of the week. Should you rest throughout the week? Yes, you should. Does your body still need rest? Yes, it does. Was the Sabbath made for you or were you made for the Sabbath? The Sabbath was made for us. It was a blessing. And guess what? Jesus ultimately is the rest we're all looking for. There's a passage in Scripture that says, in Corinthians, that says, One day will come about the saying, Death, where is your victory? And death, where is your sting? You guys know this. It's often quoted in funerals. It's often quoted in these moments where people say, See, Jesus came, death has no victory, and death has no sting. Do you know that that's a lie? Because the Bible says one day this saying will come about. It does not say that day has come about. Why do I point that out? Because death has a very real sting now. It seems to have a very real victory. Work seems to wear us out. Life seems to crush us at the very core of who we are, doesn't it? It breaks us down. Our relationships are in, in, in shambles and in turmoil. Our country is in chaos. We can't seem to find anything to unite on. Why? Because that day hasn't come about yet. But we have hope. And the hope is that Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our victory. One day we will say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now, I I happen to like this idea because I'm a bit of a sarcastic person. And when I'm I'm right and you're wrong, I I know this is not Christ-like. I like to mock and tease, okay? Don't judge me. I know you're the same way. Anyway, so I like to mock and I like to tease. And I love the idea that's presented in that passage that one day we get to mock death. Oh, death, where is your victory? (laughs) Where is your sting? Isn't that a cool idea? Maybe it's cool for a snarky person like me. But anyway, it's really an awesome thing. I can't wait for that day. That day isn't here. There is a day where we will all rest completely. We read Psalm 23 at the beginning. There is a day where we're going to walk into this field and Jesus is our shepherd and we will lie down in green pastures and we will be at peace, church. That day is not here. But I have the hope of it. I have the hope of it. Why? Because Jesus is my rest. Because everything we're talking about with festivals and Sabbath and all of this, it's a shadow of what was to come, the substance of which is our Savior and our King. Literally every event in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. Such a powerful truth. So we move to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Here's what we read there. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Nathan, why is it that God creates a law and then does away with it, nails it to the cross and becomes the fulfillment himself? Doesn't that imply that the law was bad? No, the law was good. The law is good. The law can't accomplish what Jesus alone can accomplish. Do you know that? Rules are wonderful things. We needed, every one of us, before we knew Jesus, we needed a tutor 
The scripture calls it a tutor. And it brings us into this right understanding of what children of the father look like. And in ancient times, you would, these kids would be under a tutor and they, they worked like slaves, okay? But they were being trained, they were being equipped, they were being molded and shaped into heirs of the father, okay? The law's purpose was that. And Jesus came and he said, I gave this for this reason, but it can't do what I can do. I've molded you, I've shaped you, and now I'm coming to make you new. I'm coming to make you children. I'm coming to give you a spirit of adoption that makes you alive. Now, for the skeptic and the new Christian or the, the unbeliever in our, in our midst today, you're looking at this going, this is a lot of strange Christianese language that doesn't make any sense. I promise, if you want to sit down and understand these things better, I will walk through it step by step with you. I understand how Christians can sound to an outsider. It just sounds like we're speaking code language, right? But when you do get the truth behind that code, when you do get the truth behind all that fancy language, it makes you jump up and down. It makes the church say amen. It makes the church want to praise God and to live for him more and more and more. So Hebrews 10 says that the law was only a shadow. But what was it a shadow of? A shadow of what Jesus alone could do because everything points to Jesus, even the law. This explains why Matthew constantly emphasized scriptural promises that have been fulfilled and patterns that have been rehearsed inside of Jesus. Look at this from Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. If you, if you ever read these references, you're going, how does that have to do with Jesus? And the Bible comes later and says, here's how it has to do with Jesus, and here's why it has to do, do with Jesus. Sometimes it doesn't make sense how it connects, but it is there. And so the scripture is quoted, out of Egypt I called my son, because Jesus went with his parents to Egypt, and they came back after Herod, right? Then, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi, because he set out to kill this Jesus character, right? Obviously quite threatened by him. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Even the Old Testament stories point to the story surrounding our King and our Savior, Jesus. This is why Jude believed that Jesus at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, Jude 1.5, now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Jude saw this as a fulfillment of Jesus. This is why Paul could say that the rock that accompanied the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings was, from, uh, was the rock from which they drank. It was Christ Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. 
Even in the wilderness, Jesus is the sustenance for his people. He is the provision. He is the life that they have. The God, that God's promise for Abraham's seed pertains to Jesus as well. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. That is Christ, the very seed of Abraham. Everything points to Jesus, and it always was. That Adam was a pattern of the one to come is also a truth in Scripture. Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Jesus was the one uh, that ushered in life. Adam ushered in death. And that Christ is actually the culmination of the law. We just read this in Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law is good. It serves its purpose as a tutor. And Christ comes in and says, that training, you are a son. You are a daughter of my father. And we will walk this out every day of our life. We will walk by the Spirit, the very thing that flows from within us. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27 says this. And he said to them, Jesus, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. Beginning with Moses? Do you know who wrote? Largely, the first five books of the Bible, all the way back to Genesis 1, Moses. Beginning with Moses is not to say beginning with some words Moses said one time. That could be, but it is more than that. I told you all that there are these breakdowns in the Bible. And so when we talk about the book of Moses, we actually have the first five books in view in the Jewish mind. And so Jesus is literally saying, beginning with Moses, beginning with the Pentateuch, beginning with the first five books of the Bible and the prophets, he then explains that they were all concerning him. Everything points to Jesus' church. Acts chapter 13, verse 32 through 35. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has also spoken in this way. Again from the Psalms, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo, undergo decay. Even David knows that this is speaking of one to come, of a Messiah. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20, for as many as are the promises of God in him, who is him? Jesus, they are, yes, therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us, right? 
So this is an amazing truth that we have to understand. Now, we're back to biblical interpretation and rightly dividing God's word. And I hope that you've been paying attention for these past six weeks. Because when the scripture says something like, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, nowhere does the, is there a line that follows next that says, and those promises all directly apply to you. Prescriptive, descriptive, written to, not written for, but not to us, right? We understand this? This is, a, this, is a, this is such an important thing because many people want to walk around saying all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so they're claiming things, which is a dumb idea anyway, right? They're claiming things that just aren't theirs. I know that this is picking on some of you and you're like, how dare you, you know, whatever. But what I want you to understand is when, when Jesus, when God brought his people through the wilderness and Jesus was the rock that they drank from, That promise was given to his people, and it was fulfilled in the coming through of the wilderness. It doesn't apply to you. Don't look for a rock for water, okay? You can look to Jesus for provision, for taking care of you, but please understand it in a right fashion. That was a promise. It was yes and amen in Jesus, and it has nothing to do with you. (laughs) That's awesome. I love that, right? So it's, it's important that we rightly divide God's word, because if we don't do this, then we're actually... We're, we're actually disappointed because we read something, we go, that just doesn't, it's never happened or it never will happen or whatever, okay? So, but realize that all of the promises in some way are fulfilled in Jesus. Why? Because everything points to Jesus. Not everything doesn't point to you is what I guess I'm trying to say in short, right? Everything points to Jesus. Not everything points to you. We've got this me, me, me gospel, Right? We've got this everything's for me gospel. It's not accurate, okay? Lastly, John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I told you last week, the scriptures do contain life. They contain life in that the testimony points to the life giver, which is Jesus. The Pharisees missed it because they're looking at the pages and not seeing what the pages are talking to, okay, Uh, talking about. And we do this same thing. So please understand, when it says you search the scriptures, Jesus is talking to them and all they have is the Old Testament. The scriptures, we're talking about him. Everything points to Jesus. So if you walk away today uh, understanding one thing, what should it be? Everything points to Jesus, right? I know, I could have said it in two seconds and just walked off and you probably would have been happier, but I needed to just fill my time. Anyway, so, okay, so everything, everything points to Jesus. This is a really important thing. So Jesus, again, guys, as we wrap all this up, Jesus is the goal and the unity of Scripture. Even Jesus himself, as I showed just a second ago, interpreted scripture as a testimony to himself. Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his status as Messiah and Lord, his identity as the Son of God, all of these are interpretive keys through which we unlock the rest of scripture. So again, it's not a small statement to say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. It's no small statement. It's not just a fun Christianese thing. It is literally impossible to find the Father except through Jesus. It's impossible to find him. It's impossible to see him. It's impossible to know him 
if you're not looking through the lens, through the person of Jesus Christ. So we talk about stories and we talk about this arc that we have and we've got stasis and rising action and climax and falling action and then we've got resolution. But here is why it's so important for us to keep our minds wrapped around the idea that even the resurrection of Jesus isn't the end. Because again, death still has a victory right now. Death still has a sting. Um, We all experience loss and hurt and pain. The church is more... um, more uh, divided than ever before, right? And I don't mean in um, uh, overt ways where we all see church members fighting each other or burning supposed heretics at the stake or something like that. But with the sheer amount of denominations that we've split into, we are absolutely divided more than we've ever been, okay? And that day will come to an end, right? And that is a climax I'm looking forward to, right? Amen? There is a day when I look forward to walking beside all of those people who genuinely surrender to King Jesus. I'm looking forward to that day. And so Jesus starts the process by dying on a cross. He starts the process by being buried in the ground. He starts the inciting event. He starts the process by raising from the dead. But From there, our story never takes a dip and it never becomes normal. It just keeps going, right? We have the most amazing story ever. There's one day when we're going to walk with our King and our Savior. We're going to walk side by side with Him. We're going to do the things that He commissioned us to do in the beginning of everything. We're going to tend the world, the new world that He creates. We're going to be the priests that He made us to be initially in the garden. We are going to be the image bearers rightly reflecting God into the world. The story just keeps getting better and better and better and better. And what's beautiful about that story getting better is that at the front of Every one of us is our shepherd, King Jesus, amen? And he's moving us towards this. And he is constantly leading us into greener pastures and better life. And I love the fact that this story is that big. I love that God breaks the, the story arc of humanity and then shows us something that is beyond measure and beyond belief. There's a lot that you need to know about your Bible. I hope the seven things that we've talked about will lead you to a better study, a better pursuit of God and His Word. I also want to end this series with this really important statement to you, and that is, it is okay to disagree with me on these points. It is absolutely okay. And I'm not saying that with any measure of, of, uh, you know, jest or anything. I want you to know that the only way the church is going to get better is that under the banner of Jesus is if under the banner of Jesus we come together and we discuss these ideas and more ideas together and grow, right? There may be things about inspiration that you learned in this series that you don't like that I've shared. That's fine. Let's have a conversation about it. There may be things that you've heard in this series about any kind of purpose, the authority of the Bible, that is really messing with you. Maybe you were raised in a more traditional environment, or maybe you were raised in a legalistic environment. And so for somebody to walk in and say, um, all the Bible is serious, but it's not all authoritative for your life, that might panic you. It might send you into convulsions, or you might think that I'm a heretic. It's okay. I I would love to talk to you about those things. 
None of this stuff is intimidating, or it shouldn't be. And please, hear, hear me on this. I, no matter how big or scary or bearded I am, I, I promise you I'm not as intimidating as you might think I am, right? We sat down in, the, we sat down in my office with Curtis Coy uh, a couple of, maybe a month ago now, and we were talking about small groups, and uh, we were talking about how people approach people, and, uh, and Curtis kind of let this out, out of the bag, and he said, you know, I think a lot of people are intimidated by you, and I asked Barney, I said, well, why, why is that the case, you know, and Barney said, I don't know, you're a wimp. Anyway, no, he didn't say that, but, but so he says, a lot of people are intimidated by you, and I think that it's just simply the position, okay? Curtis himself goes, I'm sitting right here and I'm intimidated by you. And I laughed because that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my life, right? Right? Nobody should be intimidated. You can have all the, you can ask any question you want. You can look at me straight in the eye and tell me you think I'm wrong. I'm fine with that. As long as we can walk together to find out what is true. Amen? The, the church is filled with people that just run in different directions because they're too afraid to just deal with issues or to talk about things. The stuff we've presented in the series is big stuff. It's challenging stuff, right? It might panic you. Don't run. Just come and talk to me. Just come and talk to me and Barney. Come talk to me and Barney and Mark. Don't talk to Mark without our supervision. But, but talk... Anyway, <laughs> that was awesome. Anyway... So there's, we love you, Mark. Anyway, you're probably watching out of one eye at home. Anyway, so um, be praying for Mark. Like, I'm, never mind. I'm just going to crash this thing. I'm just going to have some fun with it. Let's put the iPad down. Let's hang up the phone. And let's just do this. Anyway, okay. I love you, Mark. I promise I love you with all my heart. Anyway, Mark uh, was uh, diagnosed with shingles this week. And it's in his left eye, and uh, had to turn myself around, and it's really rough. Uh, Sarah and I have had shingles. We had them back in our 20s. <laughs> it was horrible, um, and so I feel his pain, uh, so he's got to get that. You should pray for him. The Koi's are not here today because they have COVID, so be praying for them. Um, back to this end of all of this. Guys, there's, there's a lot to be learned about our Bibles understanding them, interpreting them right, growing together. Um, please ask the questions. Please engage in the conversations. It's really important. It's really important. This is how the church is actually going to move forward in a skeptical world if we don't kill each other first, uh, right? We got to make sure that we're loving each other first, and then we can move out. But they're supposed to know us by our love for one another, and they, all they see is us arguing and, and disagreeing with each other. So I hope that the series has been helpful for you. Everything's on YouTube. Everything's on Facebook. You can go back through, and you can parse through it uh, slowly, slowly and steadily. Next week, we are going to have our panel discussion. We're going to be talking about the misinterpretation of Scripture and how people do that. And we'll have everybody up here. That's a really important thing. I wanted to add this to the, the notes here, that after the Paul Women and Wives series, I put out there that, that uh, the views of our church and how we believe that God has called both men and women to ministry and life in the body. We made a specific case for women deacons and how Phoebe in Romans is called a deacon. And uh, Miss Kathy Glover-Griever is going to be joining us in that journey to be trained as a deacon. So um, we are excited about that. So next month, uh, next uh, devotional series, uh, Miss Kathy is going to uh, share a teaching 
specifically geared, according to Mark, for Kathy, but she, she could do anything. So it's really awesome. So I want you guys to encourage her. I want you to bless her. I want you to be praying for her as she moves forward in things. Um, then after we get through that, um, we're going to begin a new series called A Celebration of Difference. And the reason why this series is so important is because we need to get to a place, uh, we need to get to a place in the church where we are living in community with one another, where we are in community with people that are vastly different in their giftings than we are, and we're okay with it, okay? In the Bible, it talks about uh, the apostles that were, they were, uh, ministering the word and they were dedicated to the ministry of of prayer and the word of God and while they were dedicated to that particular uh, call in in the church um, there were others in the church that were had to be made responsible for taking care of the feeding of the widows that were being overlooked and so what we have is a picture painted of differing gifts and differing jobs. And yet the scripture says something beautiful when this proposition is presented to the church. It says, this found approval with the church. There were the apostles, they were doing this job, and there were the, the people doing this job. And everybody thought that was a great thing. And in the modern church, we're just... We've got too much envy and jealousy going on. And we look at each other and go, why is it that he doesn't have to do or she doesn't have to do or I have to do or they don't have, whatever. We look at this because what we're not doing is celebrating the difference inside of our life, okay, in the, inside of God's body. And here is why it, uh, in the big picture, is required for us to get. Number one, it'll, number, a couple of reasons, it'll cancel out the squabbling and the fighting because we'll actually be content and be okay with each other. But number two, the church will operate in fullness. This is something I don't think the church does today. I think the church operates in three major giftings, pastor, Teacher, worship leader, generally, right? That seems to be the gifts that everybody thinks are the greatest gifts ever. And so when somebody comes in and they say, I want to be trained, what they're often saying without saying it is, I want to be trained to be a pastor, or I want to be trained to be a teacher, or I want to be trained to be a worship leader. And my goodness, church, there's so many different gifts. And if we will operate in all those gifts and be content with our gifts and rejoice in those gifts, this church will continue to grow and to bless the people around it. So the next series that we begin is a series called Celebration of Difference. And we're going to be looking at all of those different aspects of who we are as people in the body of Christ.